Well, I hope you enjoyed the first full weekend of college football. Um, you know, some of you don't care about football, which means you have time to do meaningful things with your life. And so uh, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm a sucker for it. And it's probably, I, I think I did the math. I played 17 years of organized football. It is totally embedded in me, for better or worse. It's just in me. And as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about, over the years, all the different playbooks that I had. You know, when you're little, when I was playing flag football, we didn't have a playbook. We just kind of made it up as we went. But the older I got, especially in high school and then in college, we had playbooks, and the, the, the longer I played, the bigger the playbook got. I mean, at some point, I think there was a binder with a couple of hundred pages in that thing, which was, I mean, it was the entire strategy for our football team, for our offense, was contained in that playbook. Now, as the quarterback, my job was to memorize, to master that book, and then to transfer what was in that book onto the field. And that was the whole key right there. That, you know, I, for all I know, we had the perfect playbook. I mean, I don't know what other teams' playbooks look like, but for all I know, what, what was in ours was perfect. It was as good or better than anybody else in the country. But it didn't matter unless what was in that book got translated and translated well enough with enough talent, uh, you know, in, uh, corresponding to that playbook that we would actually be able to win a football game, which we didn't do a whole lot in my experience. But, see, it doesn't matter what's in the binder unless what's in the binder can translate. Okay? Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but... There is a sense in which the Christian life kind of functions that way. I mean, you think about this. I, I suspect, at least, that most of us grew up in church or around church. Most of us have a fair working knowledge of what's in the Bible. But unless those things translate into the real stuff of life, then it doesn't do us a whole lot of good. Our heritage or our head knowledge does it. Unless, unless it changes how I think how I choose, how I speak, how I act, then what I know isn't doing me a whole lot of operational good. And so the deeper question for us as Christians should not be, what does my church attendance look like or what does my Bible knowledge look like? The deeper question is, is it translating? Is it active? Is it changing me? Is Jesus transforming the real stuff of my everyday life? If we don't ever ask that question, then it may just be that we're very outwardly religious, but not inwardly transformed. And so this is the corner that we turn when we look into Ephesians 4. What we've been doing, I think, since about the first Sunday of June, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in the first three chapters, uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, pop quiz for those, either you may be really sharp already, or you've been with us the last several weeks. How many direct commands does the Apostle Paul give us in the first three chapters of Ephesians? Anybody know? Nobody wants to venture a guess in church? Zero. Now, he implies some things in those first three chapters, but as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't find a single direct command in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And it kind of takes us by surprise because most of us, I think, our perception of the Bible is that it's primarily commands. But when Paul gives us uh, this, this great, um, wonderful work of Ephesians intended for the church to follow along, he doesn't start with commandments. He starts with the gospel. And Paul gives us every facet of the gospel that there is. He paints this beautiful picture for us. It takes three chapters for him to do it, to tell us about what God has done in giving us his perfect grace, 
And then Paul prays twice. He prays very passionately that that grace would sink deeply into our hearts and would transform how we think, that we would know the gospel to the very deepest part of our being. But now, having laid that perfect foundation in three chapters, Paul turns the corner here, and he begins in Ephesians 4 to call us to action. And it's not two separate things. That the first three chapters are one thing, and now we could basically cut the book in half and start over. No, the first three chapters are what we build on. The gospel implies a certain way of life. It calls us to a certain way of life, and Paul now is going to unfold that for us. And so he's going to tell us now, over the next three chapters, what does a person and a family and a church look like when the gospel of Jesus gets translated into how we live? Okay? Now, I know some of y'all are go-getters by nature. You're action-oriented people. Ephesians 1 through 3 has been killing you. Like, give me something to do. Well, here we go. Okay, here we are. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Just as Andrew read it for us, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I, God's prisoner, implore you, exhort you, to live in a manner that's worthy of your great salvation. That's what he's saying here. And this one verse, verse 1 right there, basically summarizes the next three chapters of Ephesians. Everything else that we'll look at in the coming weeks is going to reflect on that single command. And I want you to notice as we begin here, how does Paul identify himself? He's done this before in Ephesians. We know he's an apostle, but he's also, he tells us at least for the second time in the book, that he's the prisoner of the Lord. Not the prisoner of Rome, although that's technically true, but he sees himself as God's prisoner. He's writing this letter in chains, either in a hole in the ground or in house arrest, but he's in prison. This is important to me because here, as he begins to command us, this is not a man sitting up in an ivory tower barking commands down to his subordinates. This is not a man just telling us how to live, but he won't lift a finger himself. Paul is a man who is living this out. He's, everything he's commanding us to do, both today and hereafter, Paul himself has walked this road and he's paid the price for it. He's in prison as a result of it. So Paul is writing at ground level here. Okay? He knows what he's talking about and what he's telling us to do. And he says, by way of command, I implore you to walk. Now the image here that Paul's trying to give us is if he were standing next to you with his arm around you, over your shoulder, pointing you in the direction that you should go and walking with you to go. That, that I think a lot of times as Christians, I find myself doing this. I just kind of try to make it up as I go. I'm just trying to do the best I can with what I've got today. And if I can make it through the day, then I'll be all right. No, Paul says that's, we don't make it up as we go. We're not just hoping for the best. There's a very clear and defined bullseye here. In Hebrews, it tells us that we run with our aim fixed at the person of Jesus Christ. He is our aim, our bullseye. And Paul is putting his arm over your shoulder, as it were, and he says, walk with me. We're going to go there together. I implore you to walk, to live in a manner that is worthy. And that word worthy is, is literally the word axiom, which is a word that's uh, um, axis, axel, things that uh, form a center, or in this case, this idea of worthiness is, is the language of the scale. Me, you may never have actually seen one of the old-timey scales where they would actually weigh things one against the other, you know, 
like the scales of justice. A lot of, we've never actually seen one of those scales, but we see Lady Liberty holding one. Those scales, what, what the word worthy here means is that we're in a manner worthy of your salvation. You think about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And Paul says you ought to live in a manner, in a way that balances that scale. When the weight of God's grace is placed on one end, you don't respond with a flippant and apathetic attitude to say, thank you for your blessings, God, but I'll continue to live however I want. That's not the Christian life at all. Paul says, live in a manner that you so diligently pursue God in in gratitude for his grace that it matches the weight of your salvation. This is a significant command here that we shouldn't bypass. Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and to reconcile you to God, that you would be not God's enemy, but God's child. And Paul says, you live your life now in a way that you tip the scale, that you show God and the world how grateful you are for that salvation. Live worthy. Um, Now, before we move on, because that's a heavy command, we have to get the order right. And I, you know, if you've been coming to Harvest Church, I, I hope I say this every Sunday, but I'm going to say it again, because if we get the order wrong on this, then we miss it entirely. We don't live worthy. We don't walk worthy in order for God to accept us. That is every religious system known to man, but that's not Christianity. You don't live in such a way that if you can be good enough to climb the ladder to God, then he'll love me, then he'll accept me. That's religion. That is not Christ. When we come to Jesus Christ to live in a manner worthy of him, we're doing that not to receive his acceptance, but in response to his acceptance. The gospel says that you have already been fully purchased. You've already been fully redeemed, reconciled. You've given, God has given you every measure of his grace that he has to give. He has withheld none of it. And now we live in response to that. If you get the order wrong on this, if I get it wrong, if I try to live worthy without God's grace, then at best I'll be a very religious person but I'll be a person who has no grace at the center of my life. And therefore, I will not be a Christian. I'll be a religious hypocrite. I'll have to hide my sin and show off my, uh, my good deeds and hope that somehow for God that's good enough. And Jesus spent his entire ministry uh, denouncing that. Those are called Pharisees. That's not us. We live in response to his grace. We have to get the order right. Now, if grace drives our obedience, right? That's the thing that comes first. Then what does it look like to live a worthy life? Remember, because he doesn't give us a low bar. He says, live a life that's the axiom. Live a life that that weighs the same as God's grace, that that balances that scale. How do you live that life? Well, Paul is going to give us a little snapshot here. Again, it's three chapters worth coming. But look at verse 2. He says, uh, he qualifies what he means here. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. In the culture of Ephesus, which was a Greek culture, the things that Paul just mentions in verse 2 were abhorrent to the Greeks. Um, Humility was not a virtue in the Greek culture. Uh, The idea of humility or lowliness was considered something that was only true of impoverished people and criminals. They were lowly because of their own choices or because of the judgment of the gods, perhaps. But lowliness was not a good thing. It was not something to be admired. It was despised in the Greek culture. 
Paul is not telling the Ephesians that they ought to mirror their surrounding culture. He's telling them instead, this is what Jesus is like. This is what I'm calling you to because this is how Jesus lived. And think about it now. Who was Jesus? Go through that list again. Verse 2, humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering, loving. That's, that's Christ. That's our Savior. And, and what's important about these specific virtues? Sometimes I'll read lists like this, and I just assume Paul's just throwing stuff against the page to see what sticks. He's just kind of, you know, what, what are good things? Let me write down some good things. It's important to understand in Ephesians 4 that these things are connected to the larger narrative. Now, if you weren't here, you can go back and read the second and third chapter of this book. Paul is speaking to a very, very um, deep cultural divide. If you were here with us, we talked about the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul spends the entire, uh, at least a chapter or chapter and a half talking about this. The Jews and the Gentiles were completely divided in terms of racial, social, spiritual Uh, religious, everything about them was opposed. In fact, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as subhuman. They weren't even worth uh, the the breath of life given to them. And so when Paul talks about these particular qualities, he's reminding us of what Jesus did to bridge the gap. Jesus came and tore down, Paul says, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and created one new humanity so that we are no longer defined primarily by those things, Jew or Gentile. In fact, Paul says it elsewhere, there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ, for we are all one in him. And so when Paul says, you're now a new community, a new humanity, he's saying to them, here's what it takes to live that out. Here are the qualities required for you to have peace and unity, and he gives them to us, patience, humility, gentleness, He's not just giving us good ideas. He's saying this is what it takes to be the church. You've got to live in this way in order to promote the peace of the church. And we see that, uh, the significance of that in verse 3. Now look at verse 3. Some people think that Paul is quoting a hymn here from the early church, possibly. He says, you be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, a lot of scholars assume that that, those, that verse 4 and 5, that was a hymn that the early church would sing, a statement of faith in a sense. And you notice this, that Paul is calling us to live in a certain way, that reflects a deeper reality. Remember, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It's the gospel that roots it. And here he says, I'm calling you to a certain way of community that reflects a deeper reality. And that's verses four and five. This is one of those places where explicitly in the Bible, the idea of God as Trinity is given to us. We don't have time today to walk through the Trinity, but this idea that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Paul gives us a sense here of not only God as triune, but he shows us the outworking of some of this, right? He says in verse four that the Spirit makes us into one body. The Spirit is what unites us and creates among us a church. Then he says that the Lord Jesus, the Son, is the object of our faith, and it's into him that we are baptized, right? That's Romans six. And then God is our Father, who is over us and through us and in us. What's Paul's point when he, when he adopts this language of Trinity? 
He's trying to show us that if we are children of God, if God is our Father, if Jesus is our Savior and into Him we have been baptized, if the Spirit of God has united us and created among us and in us a church, then we ought to live as if those things are really true. This is our call. Remember, it's the deeper reality that roots our behavior. We're not just doing good things because it's the right thing to do. We're doing them because we've been rooted in something eternally significant here. Father, Son, and Spirit who created these things within us and among us. And Paul says, now you walk it out. Walk in a manner worthy. Now, how do we begin to do that? How do we begin to do that? Uh, the first thing I want to say is that we have to really sharpen our, our perception of what the church is. Because what, what Paul is saying here, these commands apply to us as individuals, but he's not speaking to us individually. He's speaking to the church, plural. And so he's talking to us about how we live in the midst of one another. And if we don't understand the value and the significance and the identity of the church, then we're going to end up just trying to be individually more humble, individually more patient, which is good. But if we miss the church, then we, then we really miss the point of Paul here. So let me give you two options that are, that are ones, you, I mean, these won't surprise you. This is pretty obvious. There is the option that says the church is a social phenomenon. The church is a social club, a social organization. The other option is that the church is a family. Okay, now, the, the one's true and one's not. The obvious truth is that the church is family. Okay, but think about this as to how easy it is to miss. Um, something we notice whenever a tragedy happens is how people tend to come together in a cohesive way um, Everybody opens their door, lends a hand, opens their wallet. We're seeing it right now in Texas. It's a wonderful thing. We saw it years ago when, uh, in the, in the uh, aftermath of Katrina, and probably a good number of us went down to the coast to lend a hand uh, with Katrina. We saw it um, in the aftermath of 9-11, where as a country there was a sense of cohesion that's, that was uncommon because tragedy had struck and we kind of started to bond ourselves together. People will open their wallets, they will serve, they will pray when tragedy strikes. Now that's a wonderful thing and it reflects the image of God. Um, evolution does not teach us to care about each other that way. The image of God in us reminds us of who we really are when push comes to shove and we, I, strangers we will open ourselves up to. Uh, like, like maybe we wouldn't otherwise. But that's my point, is that typically on a, on a large scale, when things like this happen, we'll step out and we'll show up, but only temporarily, only perhaps as long as the need exists or as long as we have the resources to meet it. But after a certain amount of time, the feeling wanes and we go back to life as we know it, don't we? I mean, we don't live at that, at that level of generosity and care all the time. We may show up, and that's great, but eventually Texas will rebuild and we'll go about our lives. Most of the nation will, okay? Because that's human nature. That's what it is to be a social organism, right? Which has its benefits, but that's not the church. See, compare this with a family. Think about a family, uh, not, a, not maybe a terribly dysfunctional family, but think about a, an ideal family, a healthy family. The church is called the household of God. When the scripture refers to us, it calls us brothers and sisters. 
The, the Bible does not shy away from familial language when it talks about us. We're not acquaintances. We're not even friends. We're brothers and sisters. And we become a family not by natural birth, not because we share DNA, but by, by the new birth, right? The new birth. It's the Spirit of God who creates in us a unity that is not circumstantial, situational. It's not social. It's supernatural. There's something about the church that men and women couldn't figure out and create. God had to create it, and he did. It's the Spirit who produces this new humanity in Christ. That's what we are. And we know this. If you're in a, if, to be a part of a family, to be in a household, you're up close. Right? A social organism, you know, you can maybe kind of pick and choose, come and go. But in a household, everything is up close. You share together and you struggle together. You rejoice together. You weep together. That's the way family is. They go through it all together because the roots go down deep. And remember, in a healthy family, we don't just decide to walk away. The roots are too deep. The love binds us together and we walk through it. Okay. Now, look back with me again with that in mind at the first three verses of this chapter. Okay? Look, look again at verses 1 through 3. We're going to put them together here. And re- be reminded, all of us, this is not Paul saying, here's how to live a better individual life. This is Paul saying, this is how we live out the gospel together. Okay? That's, the, that's the context. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, you plural, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, still when I read that, I, maybe, I, I don't know if it's a gender thing, maybe I'm a man, and so I just tend to gloss over things like this, especially lists, and I conclude to myself, okay, Kyle, be nice today. That's, that's the conclusion. Be nice. Be nicer. Uh, so I get lost sometimes. I miss the forest for the trees. Maybe that's the right expression. So we're going to take about 30 seconds each and just walk through these qualities to get a better sense of what Paul's saying here. He's not just talking about you individually. He's talking about us. But if you don't adopt this, if I don't adopt this into my own heart, then it doesn't do a whole lot of good for the, for the whole, right? For the greater good. And so here, we're going to spend about a half a minute on each one. But I need this because otherwise I'll gloss over it. I'll think be nice when there's more to it than that. So look with me first at humility or lowliness. It's uh, Philippians 2 is the great chapter on humility where Paul defines it as saying that we consider others as more important than ourselves. That's what humility of mind really means. Our culture tells us, here's the competing um, uh, message. Our culture tells us that you should follow your heart. And you should do what makes you happy, and you should ultimately create your own meaning for life as long as you're true to yourself. Follow your heart, be happy, create your own meaning, follow your heart, do do whatever it takes to, in a sense, kind of build your life on that platform. But the gospel flips that around and says, no, don't build yourself up, forget yourself. This is called self-forgetfulness. That's what humility really is. One of my heroes is Tim Keller. He wrote a little bitty book. You can, 45 minutes, you can read the whole thing. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Great little book. But that's what humility is. It's not that you hate yourself. It's not that you deny yourself any enjoyment in life. No, it's simply that you forget yourself in favor of the greater good of those around you. 
That is not natural. God has to produce that. Then there's gentleness or meekness. Albert Barnes, one of the old commentators, I'm going to read his quote here. He says, gentleness relates to the manner in which we receive injuries. We are to bear injuries patiently and not to retaliate or seek revenge. The meaning here is that we adorn the gospel when we show its power in enabling us to bear injuries without anger or a desire for revenge, but with a mild and forgiving spirit. So gentleness here specifically speaks to when we're hurt. And, and more specifically, when we hurt each other, when we don't respond to the text message, maybe as simple as that, or when we really hurt each other maliciously, within the church, Paul is calling us to gentleness. And that means, on one hand, that I don't fly off the handle on any of you, that I don't lose myself in anger in order to dominate you and win. But then it also means that I don't passive-aggressively kind of get back at you if I feel slighted that I don't give you the silent treatment or keep you at arm's length, that I don't try to gossip about you behind your back and plant something against you. But gentleness is when I'm hurt or when I perceive hurt, I, real, I realize the gospel has set me free from revenge and I'm able to love and forgive. I'm able to uh, let a wrong pass by even, especially if it wasn't something you intended. So that's, that's in a sense what gentleness means here. It's how we respond when we're hurt with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Now that string kind of goes together. With patience showing tolerance for one another in love. Uh, in, the, in the Greek language that Paul wrote, this little string here essentially means uh, long-suffering. That's not a word we tend to use in our English language nowadays, but long-suffering, or literally to have a long fuse, which I love that image of it. There may be a bomb on the other end, okay? But there's a long fuse, okay? That's, that's how we're supposed to be. Now, do me a favor here. Raise your hand if you ever, ever in your life took a family trip, a long road trip in the car with your family. Okay, I think most of us have probably done that. Did you make it out of the state before you put your hands around somebody else's neck in that car? We, it's, you know, those things, that in, in our minds, a trip is so wonderful. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. And then like 45 minutes into it, we are, we are at each other's throats because those kind of moments, holidays, car trips, those kind of moments can bring out the worst in us. And it's hard to understand why, but that's the truth. Now, what Paul is saying here is that we are called as a church to be long-suffering, to have a long fuse. If the church is just a social organization now, if we're just a social phenomenon, then we can pick and choose on this. As soon as there's an annoyance, as soon as there's some conflict, as soon as we find out about idiosyncrasies, we're free to just leave. And we'll go find another place that, that is more palatable to us, that we like better. Um, or in our culture, of course, you don't have to go to church at all in that case. If you don't like where you are, you can stay home and watch church on the internet. That's a viable option in our, kind of even our Christian culture. But what if the church is a family? Remember this. What if, it, what if the church is really God's household? That is to say, we're, we're all in the station wagon together, okay? We're in it for the long haul. What if that's really true? Then we're called to do what healthy fam families do, what good families do, which is to suffer long with each other. And I realize that doesn't sound very romantic. That doesn't sound like much of a pep talk, but that's just, there's no way around this. That's the way it is. The truth is, the more time you spend around people in the church, the more put off you're going to be the more we're going, to, we're going to start to see the sins and the flaws in each other that maybe on the surface we didn't recognize. I don't know what kind of image you have in your mind of me, 
but it's probably not right, except for Jennifer. It's probably not correct. She knows me better than you do. You may look at me and think of me better than I really am, but if you spend enough time around me, you're going to see me. I bite my fingernails, and of course, that's a small thing. Right? Um, but, and, but you're also going to find out, I mean, Kyle's sinful. Kyle's selfish. Kyle's full of self-pity, like I mentioned earlier. I mean, I, you know, I, I've got all manner of issues that I bring to the table. But the point is, man, we're in the station wagon together, and God's called us to do this, not because it fits our agenda, not because it necessarily makes us happy, not because it's easy and comfortable, but because we are a family. We're the church. We don't just decide to punt when things get a little dicey because God's called us to something more significant than just our own preferences. And once again, it's the gospel that reminds us of this. It's the rooted, it's this root we have deep down in the gospel that says we're all equally sinful. I mean, don't even think for a second that somebody next to you is more or less sinful than you. We're all, we all stand on the level ground of condemnation to start with. We're equally sinful, but we're equally forgiven. We're equally graced. And that's what gives us the common bond to do this thing together, even if it hurts, even if it's difficult. And the culmination of these qualities, this gentleness, humility, patience, long-suffering, these things, we see this in verse 3, what the purpose is. Look at verse 3 again, last verse we'll look at. That we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word diligent means hard-working, enduring, it doesn't. God has created this unity. He did it, right? But if we're not diligent to pursue it, if we're not diligent to walk it out, then we will not experience it. God will not wave a magic wand over his church and make us compliant with his commands. We have to want it enough to live it out in community together. And there's more. We see this in verse 3. There's a lot more at stake here than us just being friends and sharing one room together on Sundays. Do we see what's at stake? It's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, capital S. I've said this before, and I really believe this. The church is a better proof of God's existence than the Milky Way, than the Grand Canyon. The church, okay? Um, people might be able to find a way to explain the Milky Way and the Grand Canyon through natural processes, maybe. Okay, and that, 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 if that suits them, that's fine. But nobody can make sense of the fact that a disparate group of people who have nothing in common, that all that's within our nature is to disagree and fight over any and everything that there is to talk about, that we would somehow not just come together in a room once a week, but that we would love each other with an uncommon love, that we would open ourselves up to one another and actually confess the deepest sins of our hearts to each other. That makes no sense. Nobody can do that. And nobody can sustain that for the long haul. Only God could produce that within his church. And so when we live this thing out, according to verse 3, we produce among us a witness of the unity of God's spirit and the bond of peace, and we show the world what God really looks like among his people. This is significant here. And Paul says it takes work. Be diligent to do it. The spirit has unified us, period. He's done it but he will not make it so in the tangible everyday stuff of life. We have to want it. And that's what Paul commands us to do here. So let me close here with a question. And you take this personally to heart, even though it's about all of us, but you, just, you, you have to answer this for yourself. In light of all that Jesus Christ has done for me in his gospel, in light of all the grace he's given me, am I walking, am I living in a manner worthy 
of the calling with which I've been called? Is the scale completely tipped because I've lived an apathetic life? Or am I diligently walking in his direction in response to his grace? That's a gut punch kind of question for me, but we've got to ask it. I'm not asking if you're living a perfect life now. Of course not. Now, there's no such thing on this side of heaven. But I am asking, am I living in such a way that my thoughts, my choices, my words, my actions reflect the grace that I've been given? Do I recognize it and am I walking it out? Am I being shaped? Am I being driven by God's grace? Now that's going to be revealed in your private life and the life that maybe nobody else sees that only you can answer that question. But that's not the first place Paul takes us. You notice in, in Ephesians 4, Paul does not take us to personal holiness as his primary objective here. He starts with the church. It's the first stone that he overturns is the church. How are we doing this thing together? If the gospel is changing your heart, it's going to show up in how you love the folks in this room. It's going to show up in how we love each other and how we honor each other in the patience and the humility and the gentleness with which we treat our brothers and our sisters, not related by birth, but related by the new birth, the far deeper and greater thing the blood of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not an individual pursuit merely. It's not just you, it's y'all. It's not just me, it's us. And for Paul to call us to this first should show us how incredibly important this is. Before you go off trying to be personally holy, as important as that is, um, you, I, I believe this, you'll become more personally holy to the degree that you are surrounding yourself with the church. Because iron sharpens iron. And so one man sharpens another. All right? Personal holiness happens best in the context of what Paul is calling us to here. And so I want us to pray. I want to pray for me and for us collectively, right, that God would give us the passion for this. This is not natural. Uh, at the first sign of conflict, our temptation is to punt, right? But we have to, if we have passion enough to say, this is meaningful, this is significant, this is my life, and God's called me to this, then we have the passion to make the commitment to live out the obedience and even the creativity to know how this thing is done. God did not give us one little way to do this. He's, let, he's allowed us to do this in multiple ways in everyday life. And let's pray that he would give us the, the means and the creativity to walk this thing out together. Father, we ask that you would produce in us what is unnatural to us. And let's just admit it. Father, all of us can admit this. Um, we like to do things on our own terms. I like the idea that I can pick and choose from a buffet when it comes to the things of the Christian life. And if there's something I don't like, then I don't have to take it. And Lord, so often we, we make an excuse concerning the church that we can, we can come and go. We can, you know, we can uh, pick and choose. We can... Man, we, can, we can go to church on the internet if it suits our desires um, rather than doing the more abrasive thing of engaging a family. And so, Lord, I just confess that that's in my heart. And I'm, I'm pastoring a church. It's in my heart that I, I, I prefer the easier thing. Um, and, uh, and, Lord, we just, I pray that you would root that out of us that we would be honest enough with ourselves to say, Lord, we're not here by our own doing. We, we did not make ourselves. We did not save ourselves. Father, you, you gave the grace of Jesus Christ in abundance to us and, and called us 
into a new humanity, a new community. Lord, we're, we're, we're not just uh, rogue individuals making this thing up as we go. Lord, we're a people for your own possession, called together as the household of God. And so, Lord, I pray that for us, uh, we wouldn't just kind of grin and bear it and say, well, if I have to, then I'll do this. Um, maybe we've been hurt by the church before. Maybe we've been scarred. Maybe we have... Um, maybe we're, we're uh, cynical about what the, the church is or what the pastor's intentions are. I don't know. But Lord, would you, would you remove all of that um, dross from among us and purify in us, a, a, give us a pure heart, a clean heart that says, Lord, I, I want this. I want a family um, given by your spirit. I want, Lord, a, uh, I want a, a shared mission that's much, much bigger and greater than me and lasting, Lord. Not just that comes and goes on the whims of, of the needs of other people, Lord, but one that is my waking reality every single day. Lord, this is what you've called us to. And Father, we need humility to pull it off. We need gentleness. We need patience. We need forbearance and love. Um, give us that kind of heart today, Father. And give us joy in the process. This is a joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.